Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about how schools are teaching mental health, haora or wellbeing. My guests today are Dr. Katie Fitzpatrick from the University of Auckland and Kat Wells, Head of Health and PE at Linfield College in Auckland. In collaboration with other academics and educational leaders, they've written a really great curriculum resource for health and PE in New Zealand. It's called Mental Health Education and Haora. This book gives New Zealand educators an amazing resource for teaching on a wide range of well-being topics. Kia ora, Katie and Kat. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Hi, thanks, Hi. Denise. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here. So first of all, tell us about why you wrote this book and about the team of people involved in it. Well, we, um, Kat and I both have a strong background in teaching health, education and schools. And um, in, the, in the 1990s, there were a lot of resources produced by um, Gillian Tasker and, and others on, on health education, mental health education, sexuality ed and other areas. But those resources hadn't been updated for a long time and there hadn't been really any new national level resources produced. So we started um, with a resource called Taking Action, um, which is a, a, a resource for teachers to teach interpersonal skills um, as a part of mental health. So we decided in the first instance that we might update that resource. And then when we looked at the need um, for content beyond that, the resource sort of grew and grew from there, really. So we involved Gillian in that in that process. Um, it was definitely a partnership between me at the University of Auckland and Kat at Linfield College. And then Gillian did some, did some work with us. We engaged um, Dr. Melinda Weber, who is a, a, a specialist in Māori um, education and te ao Māori and, um, and, and education psychology. And Dr. Rachel Riedel, who, who specialises in wellbeing and positive psychology research. So quite a team. Yeah, yeah. that was good. It was fun. There An were amazing team, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kat and I sort of led the, led the work, but, and the others um, fed in in their specialist areas. Great. Because it's a really wide-ranging book. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about what's in the book? Yeah, so um, the original Taking Action resource that we started with forms just about a quarter of the final resource, Um, and that section is mainly to do with interpersonal skills and, um, I guess, skills and activities around working with others. We also have a large chapter looking particularly at identity and... um, a chapter looking at well-being particularly and then we have a section looking at health promotion and how schools and teachers and students can become in real life taking action projects which will enhance the well-being of themselves the students around them community whoever it is that they decide to work with on that so it's become a very meaty book with a lot more in it than we originally anticipated when we started. 
Yeah, the under. I, I think the under. I, mean, I just think it's um, it's such a fantastic resource, and even you haven't even mentioned Section Five warm warm up activities, <laughs> which has a great collection of really practical, fun, engaging things that teachers can do as well. Katie, what were you going to add? Well, I was just going to say that the the kind of underlying philosophy of the book is is quite important because. We've, in the work that I do internationally in the field of health education, um, it's, it's quite apparent that there's sort of tensions between educative approaches to health and wellbeing education and interventionist approaches. So the interventionist approaches tend to focus exclusively on individual approaches um, that are informed by psychology and particularly positive psychology. Some of a lot of which is really useful. Lots of really useful individual strategies um, for young people and adults to use in their lives. But those strategies alone don't actually impact um, social contexts. So the social and political um, determinants of well-being are also really important. So we tried in this book to look at issues like um, gender equity, like racism, sexism, homophobia in addition to the personal strategies we can use that um, schools also need to be thinking about the, the social context and interpersonal context. So in some ways that's why it grew and grew because that's complex work and um, it needs it sort of needs long-term um, teaching and learning all year. You can't just do it in one small unit or in a week or have a wellbeing week. It, it, it's it's in-depth work that needs to be ongoing. And I love that it addresses collective societal well-being and what makes that up too. Um, there's a really great writer, I think he's uh, Isaac Prilitensky, who's originally from Chile but has worked in Australia and, and Canada and the States. And he always says there is no individual well-being without collective well-being. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and that concept's very closely linked to the underlying concepts of our curriculum area. So um, I think all of the activities really are very closely aligned with what the curriculum um, looks like for us as a learning area, and particularly that difference between the, the individual and society. It's quite important with that, yeah. Mm. I mean, and that, that's kind of bringing us on to my next question is around... Um, Obviously, you, you believe that teaching well-being is an important part of the curriculum. Um, and what, do you, what difference do you think teaching it can make to the well-being of New Zealand youth? I think our primary focus is around education and around teaching and learning outcomes rather than specifically around well-being outcomes. That's quite hard to measure. And there are so many factors that determine individuals' well-being and the well-being of society that what we can really tackle and make our main focus is around education and around making sure that students understand the world in which they live in and the place that they take with that and the changes that they can affect when they're on their own or with others. Yeah, I think one of the um, there's a big there's a big push internationally as well in the in the literature as you know and in New Zealand for whole school approaches to health and wellbeing and I I absolutely applaud a whole school approach I think it's it's a great idea it's ambitious um, it's difficult to do and I think we should we should be putting resources into it 
But for me, that a whole school approach doesn't work without curriculum time dedicated to young people um, developing the skills and knowledge and attitudes and having time to really explore um, knowledge, to contest knowledge in this area, to uh, to think deeply and, and to develop the skills for it because school-wide approaches are... are all schools are made up of individuals mm. and cultures and groupings, so you, you need both of it. And I think it's in, it's sometimes seen as a quick fix to say, let's do the, the school-wide approach, but we need the curriculum time embedded in there as well as part of that. It's really important. Yeah, that's the time where students develop the ability to think critically around the, the world around them. They're not going to be able to develop that through... Um, sort of whole school approaches um, in the same way. It's funny, as you're talking, you know the way sometimes pieces of a jigsaw puzzle just suddenly slot into place? Um, You know, we talk a lot about well-being literacy and say, you know, schools are really big on numeracy and literacy, but we also need to think about well-being literacy. Mm -hmm. And and we often talk about it in terms of, um, think about it like a car dashboard, what are the things that are on your well-being dashboard that you need to know about to be to be keeping an eye on to look after your well-being? And really, health and PE is the place in the school where students get to, to learn to build their well-being literacy, um, which which makes me feel it really should be a compulsory subject. I know. Um, my own son dropped health and PE, and I think he managed to do no health and PE for the last three years of school. And, and I thought he was, not just him, but, you know, there is so much important information to be learned in health and PE. Um, and I, I guess you're probably not going to argue if I say I think it really it really is something so important that it should be compulsory at least till you know as late as we can manage. What yeah, are your I think. On that? Well, I think it's it's tricky because it is um, technically health and physical education the the learning area is compulsory up until year ten for all students, but in many schools. There's, there's actually not very much time dedicated to the health education part of health and physical education. Most schools would have physical education classes, but wildly variable amounts of time dedicated to health education. So um, schools like Linfield, where CAT is, have a lot of time and do um, intensive in-depth programs, and other schools have a couple of lessons a term, um, and then everything in between. So I think that's an issue, even um, even prior to to year ten and to the um, to when students start to choose NCEA subjects and specialise. Um, some schools do, like Cat School, and you might want to talk a bit about this. Do have actually programs for seniors in health education that are outside the NCEA? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that would be really interesting. So um, we, I guess, we have. Um, the standard sort of um, level one, level two, level three, um, which are optional. Although at year 11, all students at Linfield College have to take either physical education or health and physical education at year 11, which would be level one. Um, And then obviously students can take it um, up to level three. 
We also have a life skills program that we run with Year 13 students, um, which runs for um, it's, it's sessions every week over the, over the course of the year, looking at a whole range of different things, some of which would definitely fit, in, fit within the health and physical education curriculum area, such as relationships, sexual health, that kind of thing, but also financial literacy, um, civic literacy I suppose around voting and um, first aid a whole range of different things which is quite exciting but it, but it's the stuff as you say they're the life skills that people need after they've left school and I think um, we all need well-being literacy and we all need it all our lives mm. um, why would why would we not want to be learning it at school? Yeah, and mindfulness and yoga would definitely be a part of that life skills program, which are quite quite useful for the students, particularly around exam time. And what's the feedback being in your school around around the different programs? You know, like are they are the, do the students like the life skills work, or is it you know? Yeah, um, st- students um, obviously have mixed opinions on all of the different options that they have in life schools and some of them will love the majority of them some of them will love specific ones um but i as far as i can tell from feedback that we've received they all feel that it's a very valuable program our um we've also done some work with our intermediate schools looking at well-being specifically um in years seven eight nine and ten so working with um, four of our feeder intermediate schools and some of our year nine and ten students at Linfield, we've had a couple of days where we've got lots of students together from all the different schools and they've worked on looking at what well-being issues are of importance to them and coming up with a range of things that schools can do to help them in their own schools, but also with that transition from intermediate to high school. That's been really exciting this year. And and I love what you're saying there, because I think this is an important part of it, is asking the students what are the issues, the wellbeing issues that are of importance to them. Um, Yeah, they know better than we do what's on top. I mean, we have an idea. We can survey. We, We have surveyed parents. We've surveyed staff. We've surveyed... Um, students to get an overall general idea um, but when you actually sit down and have conversations with the students and when the students talk with each other um, you can get some really valuable insight into what's going on particularly when they're talking with students at other schools so the intermediate school students talking to each other and talking to our high school students and they're all coming out with the same sort of ideas it's very powerful you know, why would we not do this? Yes. So, so thinking about um, the teaching of haora, of well-being in New Zealand schools, what do you think has been done well? Where, have, where are some of the best teaching you've heard about or come across? What kind of things are happening? I would say schools that really value the subject and give time in the timetable to be able to implement a, um, I guess, a more thorough, in-depth program would be the the places that 
um, would be doing really great things. And also schools which value professional development for their teachers to allow their teachers to um, meet with other teachers, go to conferences, um, all of that kind of stuff really helps to broaden the learning of the students. Yeah, I think one of the guides that I um, sort of use from my research in health education and from the work that I've done with schools is that schools that, high schools that would have um, two, sort of two lessons a week or two lessons in their timetable cycle of health education separate from physical education and have that going for the whole year, they tend to have really good programs because they have time to dedicate. Because mental health education, of course, is only one part of the health education curriculum. Um, there's also sexuality education, which includes relationships, healthy relationships education, drug and alcohol education, and food and nutrition education as well. So if we're thinking about all of those areas and the, and the depth of content and need in them, then you need dedicated time. Um, so I think the two lessons a week as a rough guide is, is quite helpful to think about that that's the kind of time that we need. In primary schools, um, there's, it's a little bit different because they tend to do a lot more integrated um, curriculum and draw across the curriculum areas into areas of focus. And they do great work on friendships and great work on communication. Um, a little bit less, I think some, some schools are building their, their mental health education capacity and, and thinking about wellbeing ed, but they don't always link it specifically to the health education space. So I think that could be, could be really strengthened. Um, one thing that's, that's definitely missing, and I think you'll know this from the conferences that you're running, is the demand for teacher professional development because in the last 20 years we've really had no proper dedicated national teacher professional development in this area and teachers are realising that, they're crying out for it, they're seeing the kinds of issues that are happening in their classroom. Um, and part of that's the, the focus, that the exclusive focus on numeracy and literacy, which is, has been problematic, I think, um, for, especially for this kind of work and for student learning in the arts and other curriculum areas that have been marginalised. So I think we're hopefully going to see a rebroadening a little bit of curriculum in schools and a, a loosening so that we can see that literacy is, is something that goes across all curriculum areas rather than being decontextualised. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think, I do think teachers need more support in this and that's one of the reasons we put the resource together to, to try and give them something that's very usable, very practical, very applied that yep. they can pick up and use right now in their schools. But it's not enough. We do need teacher professional development. Yeah. And um, one of the things I'm curious about, because, you know, we work very much in the space of whole school well-being. And I'm often curious that schools don't seem to sometimes know or appreciate exactly what they have in their health and PE departments. Um, how, what kind of suggestions do you have to schools for bringing that out of, you know, they say they want to do whole school wellbeing. I'm like, well, you've got a load of experts in your school. How are you using them? Mm. You know, there mm. must be so many ways schools can bring um, the wellbeing literacy piece from health and PE into some of the whole school activities they do. 
Absolutely. I think the first thing you need there is a really great relationship between um, all of the key stakeholders in the school. Um, so health teachers, um, social workers, psychologists, um, counsellors, whoever it may be in your school, the school nurse um, and senior leaders who are sort of mainly looking at well-being and pastoral care, the deans. I guess having that relationship with all of those people together to make sure that you're aware of the, um, you know, what your vision is and where you want to go. Um, and probably having a group of students involved in that as well is really important um, so that the, you know, the adults aren't just making a lot of assumptions around what's going on. Yeah. And we know, we know that student agency, agency is a big part of well-being. And if you don't actually... Um, empower your staff and empower your students in the area of well-being then you're missing out on a huge opportunity aren't you yes absolutely and I think I think there's some really interesting new research internationally about how you know students doing advocacy and activism in their school around issues that they see as important um, for them and I think that schools need to embrace that to, to create spaces for students to do absolutely student-led um, advocacy and activism work in their schools, you know, creating environments and making change and, you know, educating each other. There's a lot that um, that teachers can learn from students um, in, in terms of how young people are thinking about well-being, how they're thinking about relationships, how they're engaging in online um, communities. And, yeah, so I think, I think a kind of open dialogue in schools is, is important. And I think it comes back to, Katie, to what you were saying earlier about um, the, the, the priority that we've had on numeracy and literacy and forgetting how that extends across the curriculum. Um, some of the more exciting work I've been hearing about in schools recently has been around um, problem-based learning, mm-hmm. where the students get to choose the issues that they want to be activists and advocates for. And then the school comes in behind and goes, right, that's definitely worth the credit for this topic, this topic, this subject. And so the school kind of does the heavy lifting of working out where the credits come, but the students get to be really engaged in in something they care deeply about. Mm. Yeah, and I think the, the health promotion part of health education that exists in the NCEA is, is absolutely focused around that, around students taking an issue that they feel passionate about, making a plan um, to, to make an impact on that issue, and then evaluating it and, and writing about that. And there's all kinds of really interesting things that, that young people have done in that space. Um, both in their schools and in their communities as well. Um, you often see schools where students have decided to um, do something with a, a charity in their local community, maybe working in a rest home or um, shelter, something like that. And it's such powerful work. It's you know I see these people as the future leaders of our country. I know the ones who get out and do stuff, <laughs> yeah. and um, and they're they're so motivated right now. Yeah. So. So what I'm hearing is um, that we need more professional development for teachers in this area, more awareness of the, the time it needs and the depth it can go to, but also that this that the health promotion piece can, can extend into so many other problem-based learning units, 
and that we need to be a bit more creative about how we use the, well, first of all, to develop and then be more creative about how we use the um, health um, resource that we have in our schools. Mm. Yeah, I think, and some of that is about students, as you say, is, is that the, the school-wide bit can be best done in part by students. If they've developed the knowledge and capabilities and they've thought through some issues, often those students I know in high schools, um, student NCA students who are studying health education are of, often the ones who are leading um, school-wide wellbeing initiatives. Yeah. And in primary schools, often the senior students who've developed um, capabilities and leadership, they're leading work with younger students, you know, around bullying, anti-bullying, or it could be anti-racism, or it could be around, um, you know, negotiating respect. And, um, you know, the, the students are absolutely capable of doing that, and they love doing it. So if we, if we build those capacities, the students do a lot of that work in the schools themselves, which is ideal in my, in my view. And I think I think somehow we've we've forgotten that we learn by doing as well mm-hmm. as by opening books. Um, and some of the schools I've seen some schools approach well-being with getting in, you know, thinking right. Let's go and do some online courses. Let's get some more PL. And other places where they've gone right. We're going to play a game. Mental health thirty-day challenge. How many five ways to well-being can you do each day? And then. There's a list and you have to go and find out. And so they've played a game for a month and all learned by doing. Mm. Um, and nothing focuses the mind on learning quite like being responsible for a project in school. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. yeah. I think allowing students to debate certain things is also a great space for learning because it allows them to f- experience each other's values, perspectives, ideas... Um, and debate issues is really important too, like you say, rather than just opening a book. Yeah, that there's so many ways to learn. Kat, in terms of what you've been doing at your school, what are you most proud of in the work you've done on wellbeing? What do you get the biggest buzz from? Um, I, I would say probably the, the work we've done late this year looking at wellbeing for years 7, 8, 9 and 10 um, simply because we've collaborated really closely with the intermediate schools and bringing the students together, um, you know, for a couple of hours a few times from those intermediate schools and from our year nines and tens has been amazing. But I really think none of that could have happened or none of that can continue to happen without having a board of trustees and a senior leadership team who really value um, learning around well-being, both in a whole school approach and from a curriculum perspective. So what, what we can achieve is really down to the time that we're given and the value that's placed on it. That is such an important message in this place, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. If you value it, resource it with time, with budget. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And um, within that project, we've had um, school counsellors from all the schools involved and uh, people from senior leadership team, teams from those intermediate schools involved. And it just shows how valued it is when you've got people in those positions involved in a project like that. It's great. Brilliant, thank you. And... Um, in terms of, uh, and 
to both of you, really. Um, what's the one thing you'd like to see parents or teachers doing that you think would make the biggest difference to well-being? Well, I think we have to we have to think about how we're defining well-being. It, it, there's a danger in, in that it becomes anything and everything, in a sense. So I think I would like to see schools and, and teachers with, um, with their students as working through a definition of what this, what a well-being um, enhancing school, their school or their classroom would look like. And I think that's a, you know, that will involve a sort of a strengths-based approach as well as thinking about what else is needed. And it's, it goes deep for me. I think that in, in the university context where I work, there's lots of talk about well-being internationally in universities, and it tends to boil down to um, you know, having some free fruit on the tables and, and yoga classes, um, which there's no problem with. But at a deep level, what's really driving people's well-being is their workloads, um, the amount of stress they're under, and how how they're sort of engaging with meaning in terms of their work and whether it's doable. So I think we have to, the fruit and the yoga is great, but we have to go to the next level around what's what's actually driving um, driving our well-being at a much deeper level in our lives. So I think for parents to have conversations with their kids about that and to start thinking and talking about it. What does what well-being look like in our family? What does well-being look like in our school? Um, and that it's a, it's a process. It's not suddenly we're going to achieve it and we tick the box and it's done, but it's, a, it's something we need to just keep checking in on. It's, it's sort of an important foundation. Mm. And how are we role modelling it? To both of you, if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being for other people, what would it be? That's a very difficult question. It is a difficult question. <laughs> For me, my work, I think about this a lot because I get, I get pulled in quite a lot of different directions in, in the academic world and I, I work in a, diff, a few different um, fields. But I keep coming back to I, I want to dedicate time to curriculum development, to meaningful learning, to supporting teachers in their work in schools because teachers make such a big difference <clears throat> to young people and their lives and their well-being and, and believing in them and, and their hopes and dreams and what they think they can achieve. And I think if teachers feel good about themselves, if they feel enabled, um, then they do, they do really magical work in mm-hmm. schools um, that has an enormous impact on our whole society for decades. Now, Kat, I'm not letting you off the hook here. I'm still curious about what the one thing you would do. If you could only do one thing to support well-being, what would you pick? Uh, I'd probably, uh, for my own well-being or for other people's? For other people. I suppose I would, um, I would just like to go and talk to all the boards of trustees and try and get them to allocate more time because you can have incredible teachers, you can have incredible professional development, you can have people really raring to go with incredible programs, but if you don't have time, it's not going to happen. So I'd, I'd probably want to try and advocate for more time. Lovely. Thank you. I'm really <laughs> glad you understood that. This is a really coherent message to boards of trustees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for, for both of you again, what works for you when you feel frustrated or down? What's your go-to strategy that boosts your well-being? 
There's lots of different things for me, I think. But the one the one thing I always go go to is the is natural environment. I think I um, if I'm feeling a little out of sorts, I head out into my garden, um, dig in the dirt, and usually my dogs come and come and help with that, <laughs> and that always um, rebalances me. I yeah, find. yeah. I, I live in I live in the bush in the Waitakere Ranges, and that's. A really nice place to just hug a tree <laughs> um, in my garden. I have a spa in the garden, so it's quite nice to just sit in the spa and look at nature and um, maybe have my teenage daughters and my husband in there as well if if they're all being happy and not grumpy. <laughs> yeah. But chocolate, chocolate helps as well. <laughs> so it's having a range of strategies that yeah. you can draw on as needed, but yeah. I like that, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It has been really great to talk to you both, and I am really delighted that you are going to be speaking at the Women's Conferences in April. Thank you, Denise. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing in Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.